Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Rob? I'm feeling very aware. Aware of what? Aware that I'm being recorded. Oh, God. Yeah, because today's guest, his work looks a lot at surveillance and recording mm-hmm. and the voice. Mm. So today I'm thinking a lot about the voice. And your voice. Yeah, not just my voice, but about how other people's voices can be recorded and the political impact of that. The political impact of a voice? Yes. That's interesting, Rob. Do you think you've got quite a political voice? I think I've got a, a glamorous voice. <laughs> I think it's uh, quite global. I think it's actually stopping people in their tracks occasionally. Yeah, I agree. You do have one of them sort of voices that most people just stop what they're doing. <laughs> and go, please, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> anyway, our guest today is really, really, really exciting. Uh, we're talking to him for the first time ever on Talk Art, down the line. We don't have a guest in the studio with us. We are doing it from another country. Our guest is currently in Beirut, where he resides. And we're incredibly fortunate today to have on Talk Art, the amazing artist, Lawrence, Lawrence Abu Hamdan. Hello. That was quite an intro. You could talk now. How are you, mate? I'm very good. How are you guys? Yeah, we're doing good. We're doing good in London. How's Beirut today? Uh, it's great. Um, it's uh, There's a madness outside. You know, right now we're having huge protests oh. uh, against the uh, corrupt uh, elite who've been thieving for far too long and expecting us to pay their uh, their bills, their wow. thieving bills. So what? There's and what? There's riots. Budging, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been now. It's the I think the fifty seventh or fifty eighth ninth day. I can't remember exactly, but uh, we're down on the streets. There's huge um, amount of tear gas fired for the first time last night, oh and God. some rubber bullets. So. It's really uh, taking a turn for the worst. Wow! But to this point, the yeah, up until this point, the um, the internal security forces were more or less keeping the peace. Now it seems they decide that we need to be off the streets after fifty nine days or so. Yeah, so it's a terrible morning. And in my other ethnic home, a disaster, a disastrous result this week as well. I don't mean to be so political from the bat, but. Some of us, uh, we don't have the privilege to not be. <laughs> it's uh, it's madness. So yeah, this week is crazy. That's the thing about your work, Lawrence, is that you are uh, proudly political 
with your art, whereas a lot of lot of artists would kind of shy away from making a, a, an obvious true political statement. But your work that is fundamental to you, your practice, right? Yeah, I see art as a means to do that very cle- clearly. I think it can do it in a very distinct and different way than you can on the news or you can in other forums. But I think for me, art is a way of making claims. It is a that's what I like to use it for. Without that, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't do what I do. So there's not it's not like the work is political. It's that for me, art is really the way to say these things and get them off my chest as it were or out of my ears <laughs> yeah 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 i've made a few notes on your work and the thing that comes up a lot is obviously politics but it's the politics of listening and the politics of sound and it's a way that i think is new- unique to your work and the way that you find that sound and politics are like never separated yeah i mean i think um for a long time, there was this, I, there was this, you know, there was a lot of literature and there was a lot of artworks that had sound as very kind of like uh, ephemeral, intangible. People's obsession with sound was that, you know, um, it was somehow, um, yeah, kind of like not part of the world. It was somehow ghostly, ethereal. It was treated as almost this... Um, this medium which was so far behind all of the thinking that had been done around the image, all of the, uh, you know, a, a political and aesthetical, aesthetic work that had been done uh, around that. So for me, it was really, sorry, my daughter's come home now. She's shouting. Uh, I'm going to keep the door uh, <laughs> locked. <laughs> she doesn't come in. <laughs> Baba. <laughs> Uh-oh, she's banging on the door. I don't know hear that. This is a very world-on-world moment. <laughs> I'm getting... Yes, Baba, I'm back here. Telephone. She wants to come and talk art. Yeah. So you were saying you felt like sound has been um, overlooked, maybe, in what, what it is to look at art, what it is to experience art. Yeah, I think people were, weren't ready to think think with sound and, and I think they were they're too busy thinking about sound they weren't ready to sort of start to think about the world through and with sound you know what I, you know what I'm trying to say that yeah. sound could be a way that we could actually access differently or from another angle um, uh, the questions that I've been working with which have to do with kind of the politics of memory and witnessing and um, and uh, it's 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 uh, it is lacking in in some ways though I think counterintuitively it's lacking because we we're so good at listening I think often people think that we're lack it's lacking in discourse because um, we don't know how to talk about it but I think we do so much kind of filtering with our ears we're so good at it we're so fast at kind of decoding language from other sounds. Um, you know, and, and I think that's, I always find it really interesting, you know, one of the most difficult things for computers was to understand that each one of us was not speaking our own completely different language because of how much kind of excess sound the voice gives to any um, given message, you know. So right now it would be like the three of us to a machine. It could not understand how that's one language for for, for, for a long time. But we are so good at kind of like 
moving past all of the kind of excess information to get really direct to the to the kind of message in, in listening. And I think often that means we don't think we don't we, we don't we're, we're kind of listening at the speed of sound. We don't think with sound. We don't stop. We don't kind of like uh, uh, think about its implications um, because it's it's so much part of the communicative process. Right. So we're sort of so used to using it in this sort of one directional way. Whereas when you kind of pause on it, you, 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 you listen to not only the, the voice, but the silences, the pauses, a whole world of kind of like uh, other messages start to emerge. Um, and yeah, I mean, one of the other points to that that I find interesting is that, you know, I work a lot and think a lot about ear witnessing and how different witnesses have described sounds. Um, well, let's talk about ear witnessing because I've just yeah, come across sure. that because of your recent film, which uh, is currently in the Turner Prize. Yeah, me uh, too. Actually, it was the first time I'd really ever thought about it before. Yeah, because you, you know, eyewitness, you think an eyewitness, but to be an ear witness, I was like, well, oh. actually, do you know what? There was one case which I was aware of, which was um, Oscar Pistorius. Yes. So when he obviously um, that that whole situation, apparently with he his shot his girlfriend, wife, and yeah, girlfriend, and there yeah. was all that talk of like banging on the door of the bathroom. Yes, and you know the sounds that people heard, and then the gunshot sounds. The and all shooting that. of Reba that was one of the first times yeah. I'd ever thought about it. And in a way, what you're talking about, this idea that we've somehow overlooked sound, is very much to me something because I think it's so obvious somehow. Like sound is something that we all, in a way, just take for granted and don't think about. Yeah. And when you do go silent and start intellectualizing something and thinking about it in your brain, mm. I, I never think about sound that much mm. apart from maybe with music when mm. i listen to music but mm. but yeah i i found that whole thing so interesting about ear, ear witness reports and mm. then also the work you've done for amnesty international it's like it's fascinating yeah i mean i suppose that was really the beginning of me thinking about it seriously because um well you, you so you mentioned these cases that everybody knows like oscar pistorius like uh, oj simpson like uh, michael brown um, these uh, Amanda Knox, all of these incredibly high-profile cases, and I, I'm very interested yeah. in working with them because they are in the popular consciousness. People can access that, but they haven't thought about it, like you say. They haven't thought about the role of sound in each of those cases. And and really, yeah. what's interesting is that it sounds like a very niche thing that I'm talking about, the ear witness. And you, like you say, you'd never thought about that term before. But actually, no, no, no. in all, all of the most high-profile cases all over the world, in all of the um, most well-known legal cases, they often hinged on sound because um, sound, uh, it, it functions differently, right, to, to images. And so when, when, you, when, you're not in, when you're not supposed to see something or when something happens behind closed doors, uh, then that sound, of course, leaks uh, uh, outside of that context. Um, so, so what really what I'm trying to say is um, that it sounds like a niche thing, but in fact, it's in in legal terms, in legal cases, it's one of the most prevalent sources of evidence is actually ear witness testimony. And despite that, there isn't really a language to talk about it. There isn't really efficient ways to solicit the memories of ear witnesses. And so when I was asked by uh, Amnesty International to, to interview the six um, survivors of Saidnaya prison um, based on what they'd heard because they was, they'd had such a limited visual experience of the prison in which they were held, 
I was looking for precedents for, for how to do these interviews, to do dedicated kind of ear witness interviews to really access their acoustic memories. And uh, there was almost nothing. So that case, really, in the end, that, that work that I did with what those witnesses... What is the case, Lawrence? For our, yeah, for our so, listeners, what, what was that case? This is a case in Syria, wasn't it? It was, yes. Yeah. So Amnesty International were looking to do some advocacy for uh, a prison um, that they had heard very horrible things about, uh, a Syrian regime prison. Um, you know, but, uh, regime meaning the, the, the regime of Bashar al-Assad. And um, what had happened was um, uh, uh, people who, who had gone into that prison had been brought in blindfolded, um, had been brought to their cell and the cells were dark. They had never left the cells for the majority of their time in, inside, sometimes three years just sitting in one room. And so that meant that the sounds coming into their cell were vital for them understanding what was going on. And when they would, they would never have eye contact with the guards. Whenever a guard would come in, they'd have to face the wall. So really the whole experience of the guards, of the architecture of the place, of um, who was coming in and out, and all this vital information was sound-based. They'd, they'd committed it to their acoustic memories. They, some of them, with, with incredible precision, had decided to really memorize every sound from that place. And it was my job then to kind of commit that sound to language, to, to work with them, to create interviews where we could really understand what it was they'd heard and turn them away from just the kind of classic victim narrative to being their own kind of expert witnesses, to really mobilize their sensitivity that they had accrued um, from being in this highly terrible place. But they'd got such an acute sensitivity to sound that it was important to, to, to register that and to, to use that as a source of knowledge for what was happening inside that horrible place, for which no independent observer has been allowed access. So... It's really, um, it was really an incredible thing to work on, not only because of how much um, uh, 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 the, the case went around the world and it was the biggest amnesty case in 2016. It was incredible to be part of something like that, but mostly it was incredible because I learned so much from those people. I mean, really, in re they, they really changed the way my brain worked. Um, and... And that's, you know, I think it often gets misunderstood, but that kind of brain-changing thing that happened to me in that process, you know, what I thought going into those interviews and what I thought coming out of them was so completely different that, um, that, 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 that that's the kind of thing that I tried to work on with my art practice. I, I couldn't find another way of, of expressing what they taught me and so the three works, uh, Saidnaya, The Missing 19 Decibels, After SFX, and um, The Earwitness Inventory, and, uh, and Wald and Wald, are works that I then made in the subsequent two years to try and sort of like express that knowledge. And the, the knowledge was really around sort of what they taught me about uh, the relation of sound to architecture, to, to violence, to human memory, to, to the voice also, to, to what, is a, what is a voice, uh, what is a whisper. Yeah. And but you so didn't go into that as an artist. You went into it thinking it was going to just be, well, not just be, but an experience of Amnesty International to help these prisoners um, release what they experienced. Yeah, that's right. I didn't go into it uh, uh, as an artist, but 
being that I am an artist, <laughs> I couldn't not be an artist in that room. And, and what I mean by that is that those interviews were not, they're not legally admissible interviews. They work for advocacy because they pulled out a lot of information, but we were really collaborating in that space. You know, we were using sounds and tones and mouthing sounds with our, no uh, our mouths and, and using objects around us and playing sound effects from films to try and create a language for something that was essentially unspeakable. Sound, you, you can't really, there's not really a good vocabulary for it, especially in the precision that we needed to talk about it. And so really, for me, art is that thing which happens after language. It's a kind of romantic view of it, but it's one I hold dear, that if you can't say it, if you can't write it, then it needs a work. It needs, a, it needs another kind of experience. And that can involve, of course, text. It can involve, of course, sound. It can involve, of course, voice. But the, what I try to do is use, use art to, 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 say, to, to, to render things possible to, to be said, which cannot be said otherwise. And so that kind of idea of, of working beyond and past language um, to account for experiences that were sometimes really also at the very threshold of experience, at the very threshold of, of the senses, um, where memories bled into one another, you know, hunger made them hear sounds in different ways. And so I think if I was just a sound technician... Um, but yeah, they would I, love you on radio dramas. You'd be incredible. Right. <laughs> You'd be able to recreate anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, if I was just a technician, I think I would have come away thinking, well, a lot of this is unscientific. But the fact yeah. that I was ready to hear the distortions in their memories as well as yeah. their silences, as well as their whispers... That's what really art taught me, and, and it taught me how to listen in, in, a very, in a very different way, and I think that's what I could bring to the table. So though I wasn't there as an artist, it was in very, I think yeah. it was very important that Amnesty asked an artist, um, even though that's maybe think, not what they thought they, did, they were doing. <laughs> yeah. Do you think like as other artists, they're uh, visually creative. They see things in their mind's eye. Do you think you have a mind's ear? Can you actually hear things in your mind as a sound artist now? I think what I try to do with a lot of my works is even if they're videos, even if they're silent graphic works, they're trying to activate a sonic imagination of the viewer. So, you know, even in works like Conflicted Phonemes, it's just an image. It's not any, it's not, uh, it's not sound. But that, those works I'm really trying to, to, even with images, think sonically and have a sonic imagination for everything that I do and, and approach. And I, I hope that that's what gets activated in, in people's uh, response, what so I'm really sonic? working. Sonic, like what do you sound. Mean sonic, though, what is sound? Yeah, like I mean just right? sound. Yeah, like a, a, a an acoustic imagination, really, like you said, like a mind's ear. Um, so, so when I want, so, so, so the collection of objects that I I collected for the Chisholm show, um, which is the ear witness inventory. So that's like uh, ninety five custom and uh, customized and sourced objects that. I've taken from different ear witness testimonies all over the world. So when a, when a witness describes a sound using a sound effect or an object, I collect those those uh, objects, and I've got this objects. huge collection. Wow. So I've got this kind of my own personal sound effects library that's not based from film or 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 the radio drama, but it's based on uh, on uh, the way that witness yeah the way that the wit witnesses describe sounds particularly, and so. So what what I was doing with that when I show the objects is I'm trying to activate a space for the audience between the the kind of 
visual and the sonic and the sound sound and acoustic and the sonic. So, you know, you would see an egg, for example. But in the context of the stories and the narratives that I'm drawing out, you know that the egg isn't just an egg, right? It's not the only the image of an egg, but you have to think of the egg kind of cracking and you have to think about the event in which um, a witness in New Zealand kept continually repeating that the punch sounded like an egg cracking, right? Um, and and so, so so you see a tray rack, a rack of trays on the floor, and it's that's um, an excerpt from Alistair Cook, uh, you know, who who did the letters to America. He was describing the the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, and he said that it didn't sound anything like a gunshot. It sounded like a rack of trays dropping to the ground. So. What I want people to do is see these objects that are quite banal that they might associate visually from from strange parts of their lives, the school canteen or or yeah. their home kitchen and egg. But the then, yeah. but but then I'm asking them to look at these mute objects and I'm asking them to hear them. You know, so so it's really like a it's it, what I'm trying to do is is always activate um, the audience's uh, acoustic imagination. And so a lot of the works, even if they're silent, I'm trying to work. In the mind's ear of the audience, if you like, um, to project a sound it. onto them. That's actually the thing. When I when I saw your um, Turner Prize uh, installation, congratulations, by the way. Yeah, congratulations, Turner for, Prize winner. Yeah, you're Thank a, you. you're, you're a collective winner. But um, when I first saw that that installation, um, I wasn't that familiar with your work, and it really shocked me actually because you made me stop in my tracks in the sense that you were making me look at the world in a different way, which I think is is the point of art in many ways, to make us see things in a new light. Um, and there was something so powerful. I actually went with my mum the first time mm. and my mum was so moved by mm. your installation because I don't think she'd ever thought about the world you know, in in the way that you were presenting it to us. Orally. Or, orally and, yeah. through, and through sound. And um, I was really also, I sort of left that thinking... God, it's almost so simple, and that's somehow its power because it's something we're so familiar with. Yeah. But the, the you take for granted things you're taking for granted. You're really highlighting. Yeah, totally. No, that's really good to hear. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I mean that's no, it's amazing. That, that that is what I'm trying to do, and I'm I'm you know a lot often people think and mistake it because it has a kind of like political level that it's somehow inaccessible or it's uh, it's too. You know, uh, if if on on first glance they might think it's very heavy academic or something, but actually I'm trying to do the opposite. I'm trying to take things that are in the you know are, are quite simple, and I am trying to bring people on a on a journey that could can be you know my mom, your mom, my grandmother. I, I'm really not. I am trying to speak to an audience, um, despite what it might at first look like. Um, so yeah, I'm really glad to hear that. Oh no, it's totally, totally accessible. So this prison that these prisoners came from, which is what the film in a Turner Prize currently is uh, covering, it, does that prison still exist? It does, yeah, it does. Um, so no one's gone in, been able to like, you know, like they, because I've got like forensic architecture is um, something that I, I guess you can umbrella for what you work in and and the, they they worked out the architecture of the building through sound has anyone ever been able to go in there and actually see the building and realize that they were actually able i guess like a bat to sonically uh, like get an aerial view of the building that they were in even though they couldn't really see it so 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 i should have said that at the very beginning yeah forensic architecture was who i worked with on 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 doing so i was the leading the sound component of that 
investigation into Sayyidnaya prison. So they're not two different things, yeah. Um, but uh, what I wanted to say is that it isn't quite like that because we would imagine, you know, that maybe, you know, well, how can I say this? You know, some of the most, uh, so, some of the information that, that we, we uncovered through through the sound was incredibly revealing. Um, but a, a lot of the architectural details came from the fact that it's actually, as I speak about in World on World, it's actually a kind of archetype prison. Actually, we have one in, in Lebanon, uh, Rumye. It's the same kind of triangle three design with this central stairway in the mil middle. Um, that... That you know, that's similar to one that Pablo Escobar was on, was in uh, um, in Colombia. So this mm. prison is actually a DDR design. It got exported all over the world, um, oh, right. particularly the kind of global south, the the kind of. So it's you like know, the, sta the standard prison. That's that's what it is. You're going to build a prison, and that's what it's. Yeah, be. you know, of the former East, it's quite standard, I would say. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so, so they could derive a lot of the architecture fr from that. It's not that we we could, you know, do a kind of Batman-like sonar thing of the prison. Um, but what we could do, quite amazingly, th through a, uh, a couple of the witnesses, and particularly one, Salam, he had this incredible narrative that he had memorized the sound of each specific door in his wing, um, and a few of them had done this. So. He memorized from the each how each hinge and each lock sounded distinct from the other, so that he could know. But did his match up? Did his did his ear experience, his sound experience match up to all the other prisoners who were in the same wing? Could they no, all so, identify the same sounds? No. So he he had done this work quite independently from the others. Right. Um, right. And 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 but what we could do is corroborate that with different information. And so what I wanted to say was that because he'd done that work, what he was doing it for was, was actually a kind of survival work because he wanted to know which door the guards were opening at any one time. So if they opened one sound, he would say, okay, that's you know, there, that's door number four, I'll call that number four. But in, in, after, in, in hindsight for us when we were doing an investigation, what, what that was incredibly useful to do was to work out how many cells were actually being used in any wing at any given time. So he would say, okay, well, during this period, door eight hadn't been opened at all. So we could say, okay, you know, it's not always full all the it's time. Empty. We could start to, yeah. yeah, we could start to work backwards to understand how many prison cells are being used. We could start to say, okay, um, the overcrowding is in fact an intentional violation. It's not that the prison itself is overcrowded. They want to stuff people in tiny rooms that are meant for solitary cells, use them for nine people. So these are kind of ways we could map out both the violations that are happening, wow. how many people are being held inside, and corroborate that with other evidence, and also understand, you know, um, where the guards see, were, yeah. the pattern of the guards in the, in the day. You so, could work out the cruelty of their regime by exactly. the sounds of what, and, and what cells are open. What, oh, wow. God. And that's just one example. You know, you could also say, okay, how many food bowls were provided? So, so all these internal details about how little they were fed, about um, how many people were held inside, about mm. how often new prisoners would come to the, 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 the prison and, and be yeah, initiated right, right. and brought did in. It, did it work? Did it work? Did it stand up in a court of law? Did this actually get proven against the cruelty? And did, did they get any sort of... Um, 
success from proving things from this? Did it work? Well, well in any, there has been no legal uh, trial against Bashar al-Assad. If it is, these witnesses will be called, and this right. testimony um, will be will be uh, put forward. Um, there, as you know, right, so even he, even though now it's been used for advocacy reasons, it could actually be used in court, in court at some law. point, right? As evidence. Yeah, I mean, it would probably have to be re reperformed and under different conditions because, as you might know, like advocacy is quite different to the yes, kind yes, of yes. Uh, burden that you know of proof that evidence needs to pass through and the chain of custody and all that stuff. So, it's it, advocacy is is freer to 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 use. You know, I, I, but it's very thorough work because you know they they interviewed. Um, we we did we did six ear witness interviews with six different uh, former uh, survivors, and then they had then gone on through the advocacy campaign to interview uh, two or three defectors, so they could corroborate what the guards who were actually doing the torturing with the witnesses who'd came out. So they so they've been gathering this testimony, but Bashar al-Assad is and still did it there. Match up? Did it all match yeah, up? Yeah, yeah, it matched up. Yeah, of course. Yeah, wow. and and more and more because you know what what was really chilling in what they were telling us was things that hadn't come yet to bear. It would it would come out in December when they interviewed the defectors, and one defectors. of the guys kept telling me, you know, um, there was something going on. He said that they would take one cell, they would call names, and they would take them and they would drive, and we'd hear the engine disappear. And we'd hear those same trucks come back. And that time wasn't long enough to release them, to take them back. But the trucks would come back empty. And he said, this is them executing. This is the, the sound of the trucks coming back empty. I'm sure it's execution. At the time, we couldn't say that in our initial report because we didn't know. Mm. We had no, no way to corroborate it. But we were, yeah, we yeah. were alarmed to hear it. When the defectors came, they said, yeah, he's exactly right. We would drive them to a building just out of earshot. It was a, a building, uh, what they came to be, to be known as the white building. The truck would just drive um, a little bit, take them there, and that's actually where the guards corroborated that that's where the executions were, would happen and the well, trucks would come back. Out. And uh, yeah, it was actually hanging, and and uh, and now oh we know. Oh my god! So 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 even from that, but like they, you say, they, they're taking it they out they of memorize the name. So they're taking it out of being people being able to hear. So they obviously know that, like, you know, hearing is a powerful resource in a in a sense. But in some ways, you think if they wanted to torture them, they would they they would want you to hit. They would have wanted the the uh, vic victims, the kind of uh, people to witness to hear that. Yeah, but it might, it might create too much hysteria, though, or something. Do you think? No, I, I mean, I, th I think you're right, uh, Russell, 100%, because that's one of the games that we were playing with that. You had to be mindful that uh, some aspects of the terror that was happening there was meant to leak out for the Syrian people to know that this was the consequence of protesting, of blogging, of... Of, right. of any kind of activism. Because in Saidnaya, torture is not used as a method to get information. It's used as a resonating chamber to, 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 to be punitive for, the, for those people who had to uh, been, been to protesting. Yeah. yeah, who'd been yeah. protesting. You know, so, so they'd cleared Make the prison. an example of these people. Exactly. So in yeah. some level, what we were doing with our advocacy work was actually helping Bashar al-Assad's message. You could, you could make that criticism. But... On the other hand, on a global scale, the world had not known uh, and was at that point almost ready to accept, because remember everyone at that point was 
in 2016 was so obsessed with Daesh, with ISIS. Um, and, the, you know, ISIS is a horrible and, and dreadful thing, but it, because of Islamophobia, it was also, you know, pumped up in the media and no one was talking about what was actually happening in Syria and, and the real mass killings. It wasn't from Daesh, although Daesh are awful, but it was really happening, you know, from Bashar al-Assad, who's a, you know, secular uh, guy. So you had to look at, you know, it, when, when we released the report, it actually had a big impact because people were ready to accept again Bashar al-Assad. And then that, that news came out and, you know, uh, France were key in, in sort of um, uh, bringing that uh, very qu quickly to their utmost uh, attention and the world's attention also on a diplomatic scale. So it was quite a crazy thing to be part of. Um, and, uh, and like I said, so yeah, I mean, that's all the stuff that came in the, the initial report. And that's all the stuff that inspired me to, to kind of, or, or, or really, like I said, sort of change the way I thought about a lot of things that I'd taken for granted. Yeah. And, well, and then, you're, you're, you're yeah. like an investigative journalist when it comes to this, but through, through sound. You're like a, and you're also then therefore becoming a storyteller through sound. Yeah, definitely. And that's the power actually of your work, I think, is that you've obviously realised, which is also quite similar in a way to your other co um, winners of the Turner Prize. Mm. I think each artist was very much looking at ways to bring about social change and also make people wake up a bit mm. and, you know, look at the issues that are go going on every day in, in the countries we mm. live in, but also internationally. Mm. And, um, yeah. How did you get into sound art? How did you think, how do you think you found that as your medium as an artist? I wanted to talk about that as well. Can I quickly say something? Yeah. I was fascinated. When I left um, the Turner Prize installation by you, yeah. the first thing I thought was like, how did he do this? Like, because I would never have thought to sort of analyse it. And then you often think, oh, well, he's an artist, therefore he's looking at the world, you know, and that's his, his role or yeah. something. But I was really fascinated about you as a kid. And I started thinking about this idea of you being British because you grew up in England, but also the idea of your kind of like Lebanese roots or and, and the kind of combination of those different histories in a way. But I was really interested in you as a kid. And I, I, the more I heard you speak, I was really fascinated by this idea of how from a very young age, you wanted to kind of break convention and that you were almost not someone that would just take something for granted and that you wouldn't just copy a sound. Instead, you wanted to break a sound and somehow like reinvent the way that you were recording sound or, or things like that. Can you speak a bit about that part of your childhood? It's like a lot of people who grow up between places or a lot of immigrant experience, right? You, you are never comfortable in one place. <laughs> mm -hmm. You're always kind of like trying to match what you think in relation to, you know, what other people perhaps are more comfortable. Um, you, know, you know, people are more kind of solid. They're on more solid foundations. Then they, they think more solidly but i think when you when you come through another channel and you're always between things and never quite meet any one uh identity or position then you then you often uh find yourself um questioning a lot of things and uh and it also so from a young age you know my father is a is a crazy code switcher so i think a lot of the works i do on the voice i i really do you know um what do you mean a code switcher? What like, so what, code, like breaks codes a, like Enigma or? No, no. A code switcher is someone who changes their accent depending on who they're speaking to. 
So, you know, like, I don't know, oh, like, wow. my mom's like a basic code switcher. Like, she has a Yorkshire accent, but then when she wants to be like a bit posh, she puts a bit of a posh voice on, you know, it's like, that's like some yeah, basic yeah, yeah. shit. But my and dad, that's called a code breaker. That would be a code, code switcher. Switch, code switcher. Code switcher. Okay, yeah. Make You're switching right code. Rob, Rob's a bit of a code switcher. When he's around me, he ends up trying to get more common. No, I don't. <laughs> I get more posh. <laughs> <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Class so anxiety. yeah, I mean, I, I think in the U, the UK is a crazy place for that because its accents mean so much there, you know. If for such a small yeah, place. definitely. Uh, yes. I think that that's really interesting. But you know, also my dad, yeah, he he, so he takes on the identity. He's like a kind of chameleon. He takes on the 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 vocal identity of anyone he's speaking to. So I think as a, wow. a kid, that really influenced me because I sort of start going, all right, so. You can be many things, you know, like the voice. It's not that I, it already broke my sense of kind of like um, the idea that your voice is who you are. Actually, your voice is mm. constantly, you're making new identities with your voice. And I find that really uh, liberating in my adult life. And like, you know, mm. like you said, it makes you very aware of who and how you're speaking to and being spoken to. And, totally. Yeah, um, I'm the same as an actor. I mean, for me, the voice and accents and dialect and everything is fundamentally one of the most important things it is to play a character. And actually, it makes me think of like when I was younger, it, I was in a, a band and I, I, yeah. I went to live in um, uh, Montreal in Canada for a while. And you Did definitely, you? I yeah, that. when I was young, um, you definitely get this kind of thing where you very quickly start to pick up the accent of the area you're in. Mm. Because I think subconsciously it must help you fit in or something mm. or, or make you... Well, it's you... a rhythm. I think when yeah. you go somewhere, you, you, you pick up a rhythm. Like if you go to Australia, everyone has that kind of like lilting upward inflection. Yeah. And I think if you spend time somewhere, you do you do like through osmosis, through the sound, pick that up and you, you rhythmically communicate with people. I know that I've done various things where I've worked with my British accent, but I'm, I'm in an American drama and I always learn the lines in an American accent and then put my accent back on it. So, cause rhythmically it links in with everyone else's rhythm. So it doesn't feel oh, like really? it just, yeah. Cause so many times I've watched shows and I've heard it's been an American drama. And then you hear a very British voice and it seems to me as a Brit, it jars. Wow. And I don't think the Americans notice that as much, but for me it always jars. So I want rhythmically, I am British, but I want to be able to just seamlessly link in with everyone else's uh, tone. So, Russell, I have a question for you. What do yeah. you think of Hugh Laurie in House, his American accent? 
as an uh, actor. <laughs> well, to begin with, I think Hugh Laurie is a phenomenon, and I think he's one of these actors that we are all still like, hang on a minute, what? Hugh Laurie is selling out Carnegie Hall doing like a jazz a concert and he, so for us cool. we were like he's like Jeeves and Worcester I know, like, exactly. how has this happened he was our childhood and that yeah. happens all the time I think you know like my mate James Corden is like in America he's James Corden at the Late Late <laughs> yeah. Show is a superstar and I'm like what that's just James how has this happened but I think he's um, I think he's spot on I think it's incredible I think it's uh, like yeah. inspiring I can't what do I, you think it, then you think it's well, terrible may, I don't know maybe because I got used to I don't know he, I can never listen I can always think that he's doing an accent I never got like that's why I could never watch House because like yeah. I was so used to him oh so you British. can't believe exactly. it exactly I know you it's can't hard you can fall into hard. it and yeah. believe it's real you know he's and I've asked the Americans and, and they've been like oh no he's American they they never I know I know, so, I know I know I know yeah so we're it, so used to we we yeah we take for granted some what someone sounds like is which is what your work's about and so then suddenly they change what they sound like and you're like hang on a minute <laughs> something's not right here. So going back to your father, so if he was um, this code switcher um, and you were already at an age where you were being quite analytical, you've obviously got a very curious, investigative kind of analytical mind in a mm. way. But um, y- you then were really into music, weren't you, in your teenage years? And you studied music technology and sonic arts and um, I, what I found interesting was I also studied music and I had friends that did music technology, but I don't feel like any of them speak about it the way you do. Like you were really talking about like recording music and learning about it, but instead of just taking for granted what you're being taught, mm. you always wanted to look on the other side. Like, do you, do you think that's just who you are as a as Almost a like a producer who samples, who creates the actual music, who yeah, creates definitely. the track and the, and the beats and everything. It feels like you look at music visually. Yeah, I mean, um, I was really uh, influenced by music, um, uh, but yeah, particularly what was happening in Leeds, like the the kind of DIY scene that was going on there, because that was very political also, but in a in a way that you know they were trying to do something very autonomous. They were trying to do something outside of the music industry. Who were these artists? Make... Who were these people who, who made these, it there were, There was like a group mainstream. called, there was a group, a collective called Cops and Robbers, and they still okay. exist. They do great work. And they had set up a zine that meant that you would, they would promote only self-organized, not-for-profit uh, gigs. And yeah. that meant that this zine was so popular that it meant that Basically, you would want to be in the zine. You you had an incentive to be there because then people would come to your gigs. But that meant you'd have to be not for profit, and you'd have to. So it, it kind of incentivized people to to work in this very ethical and very cool way, um, which was better for the for the bands. It was better for the for the um, for the audience because they would pay nothing to come in. You know, like three quid, all the music would go to the band. So anyway, it was it, it was enough that it got, you know, my brother was studying in Leeds. He brought me along to these gigs and they were just amazing. Um, and that really changed both me understanding stuff politically because of that, what I just described, but also aesthetically, because then I would see stuff that was just crazy, you know. And before that, growing up in Jordan, I'd only had like MTV Asia, you know, so... <laughs> So, and that's not MTV, you know, Europe or, or US, I have to stress. MTV Asia was pretty bad. It was just like, 
they, they would do like constantly Simple Minds Week. You know, you'd have like a week of just oh, wow. playing Simple, simple Minds. Simple Minds Week. <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah, it was horrible. I, I remember traumatized by Simple Minds Week. I, I'll never forget that. What, what <laughs> is it like now when you hear Simple Minds? You have to turn it off. I, I can't. No, I can't. Anytime I hear Simple Minds. <laughs> that's an audio related memory for sure. <laughs> that's trauma. That's PTSD. That's the thing is that, uh, so what I'm trying to say is that uh, that really did, uh, that really did, um, um, changed the way I thought both about politics and also aesthetically about sound and it really expanded my horizons for thinking about what a sound could be and how it could, you know, you know, I, you know, instead of sounding like simple minds, something could sound like crazy noise and that could also be considered music and that was mm-hmm. a kind of amazing moment for me. So, um, so that was really a turning point and, and you know what was... And, and then afterwards we would play in, in bands and I, I toured... I think our last tour was in 2012. Like we would, we would take all the time off studying or work just to tour around Europe, and and we would what be, were you, you called? know, we were called Clack Huddersfacts, my band. Say what? Clack Huddersfacts. What? <laughs> what does that mean? What did it come from? How did you come to it, that name? It's just a stupid word. We just like the sound of the word. It's like a stupid word, but it means that it's like Cleckheaton, Halifax, and Hud- and Huddersfield. It's this triangle okay. they called the conurbation. They called oh. Clegg Huddersfacts in Yorkshire. Anyway, we're not. None of us are from there. We just thought the word was kind of stupid. Our friends were from there. Right. Anyway, so we called ourselves that, and uh, yeah, we would just, you know, we 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 would do we would do that uh, very passionately. And and what was really fascinating, you know, this guy. I did an interview with uh, Music Matters on uh, Radio Three uh, yeah. last month. And this guy asked me, uh, he said, why is what you do not music? I thought, what a stupid question. You know, of course it's not music, it's a film or it's, a, it's an installation or it's an image. So I can explain yeah. that to him. And he looked at me like, oh, this guy is not, like, he's, not, he's also stupid. So we were looking at yeah. each other, confounded. And he's like, no, 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 what I mean is the rhythm, the, the way you use tension, the way you relate to the audience. He said that he feels it's, it's extremely musical. That especially that idea of bringing a listener in of uh, of you know because in music your relation to the audience is so much more direct than with visual art often and I think that's yeah. what that's the thing well, I, you're I really feel... considering the audience with yeah, music it... you have you want your audience to be activated and, and be into the music whereas with visual art it's like sometimes you make the work because you feel you have you're compelled to make it and you don't really care about the audience in some ways. Exactly, yeah. Or, or, or you consider them a bit differently, and I think, yeah, I'm I'm very happy that I've gone uh, that music taught me that relation to audience because I think that's what people have really attached to about the work. Um, mm. Yeah, it helps people to connect, doesn't it? Yeah, because you know it's, it, it's about intensity. You, you know, you, you, you when you're playing with music, you're playing with people in a you know in these different intensities. You want at some point you want them to to reject it, to bring in you, you know, it, it's about modulating that experience of you in the room with those people. And there's something more yeah. direct about it that I really want to maintain at the core of, of the work. So, um, so that's all of that is to say, yeah, that a lot of this does come from music and none of it comes from simple minds. 
Well, that's a shame. <laughs> well, we won't let Simple Minds know that. They Hopefully they feel like they've had some effect on your life. Something I was really... Um, so, something I really have taken away from your work is I started to consciously think about how in society we can be controlled or made to do things via sound. And it's something I'd never, ever thought about. And I started thinking about memory and sound. And when I was a kid, you, I grew up in um, a place very near Cookham in Berkshire. And I always remember the church bells, for example and religion using sound. Um, and when I went to Beirut a few years ago, and I think I thought of this obviously because you, you're, you're living in Beirut and you're um, half Lebanese, but um, I I really started remembering my experience in Beirut through sound because often you would have like the call to prayer. And I remember being at the top of one of the famous hotels there and we made a video um, of the experience and you could see all the buildings, like the tops of all the buildings. I can't remember the name of the hotel, but it's like a kind of roof terrace um, bar. And it was during the call to prayer. And it was one of the most amazing, sensual kind of experiences. And it was the highlight of my trip linked to sound. And it started making me think about how religions use sound and and I don't just mean like hymns, but I mean that whole idea of like a, a call to prayer or maybe like ringing the church bells to get people to go to church and all that kind of part of carol singing, carol singing. Yeah, yeah but that, that kind of control in a way and the way that, you know, we can be um, led or directed through sound. And it's genuinely something I've just taken for granted and never thought about. Um, is that something that you're aware of? That is the call to prayer is something I take for granted. But I think what is interesting in, in what you're saying is that you can use sound to create space and a communal space in ways that defy the way we normally think about space. You know, so you're sitting on top of a hotel listening to that. Someone else is sitting in the mosque. You know, so you're all in one kind of acoustic space. And, and I find that yes. really interesting. Um, yeah, you know, totally. same with the church bell. It was all about, you know, it was all about the jurisdiction of a specific church, wasn't it? Like, how far you yes. could hear the bell ring was was which church you should go to kind of thing or your no that was your, is that that was your cent, that was your kind of center right so they say bow so it's bell a sense so of zoning zoning through sound yeah kind of like yeah right it, it, and I like, guess it does of, bring people together as well doesn't it because it's a community thing in, in a mm. sense exactly and it's a positive yeah. as well I don't mean it just as a negative at all but um, I just found it quite I, interesting because I'd never really thought about memory and linking it to sound. You, you know what's interesting? I mean, this is, I, off, I, I try to stay away from also people saying one culture is more sonic or one culture is more acoustic, one culture is more, you know, sense. The, attributing senses to different cultures is a bit tricky because, yes. Um, yes. Cause, you know, it, it's been used also quite violently, you know, to say, okay, then the Europe is the rational place of the eye kind of thing, you know, in, in old colonial kind of uh, idea. But... You know, what, what is quite interesting is whenever you watch uh, films with Arabic subtitles, so you're watching an English film, a film in English, and whenever it says, yeah. look, right? So someone say, look here, right? Or look, you know, uh, mm. uh, like he, he's uh, trying to get the attention of someone. Mm -hmm. uh, in Arabic, you always see the translation is, listen, <laughs> isma. So you ah. see, you see, uh, so you'll, you'll say, and now look here, or like, look. Now look, you know, you know the way we we would use look in English as a way to say yeah, like, yeah, yeah. to get attention. Yeah, yeah. Well, in Arabic, you say listen. So it it is actually kind of funny because I always think about that like you wait, that those scenes in films. Probably some of your films, Russell, you, you you'll have that same yeah. thing. So if yeah, you find the wow. Arabic, so the Arabic translation is always yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess oh, with your Yorkshire countryside, everyone was telling you to listen to look. 
And whereas in the Arab world, they're telling you to listen, and that's where all of yeah. your work has come from. <laughs> yeah, maybe you could you could get work backwards from that. Yeah, that's a whole uh, other yeah. thing, though. That's like an, that's a whole other thing, isn't it? Because that's like translations, and then yeah. oh my god, that's a whole other. Right, universe. we're going to get onto where you're at now. Um, you've just won collectively the Turner Prize 2019, uh, which we've congratulated on, but we will congratulate you again. Thank but you, thank you. How has this... You're welcome, you're welcome. You're very well deserved. How has this whole experience of being a Turner Prize nominee and now being a collective Turner Prize winner affected the life of Lawrence Abohamdan so far? Well, you know, it's... It's not, I, I think if I'd been living... If I live in the UK, it would have been... I'd have felt the impact more, but... Um, I kind of disappeared quite quickly afterwards. I did get spotted in a pub the next day, which was quite a weird experience. Where, in Margate or in London? Or? No, in London, yeah. A random yeah. bar. Then, then, you know, that was quite funny because, you know, uh, well, you know, that's, that can happen in, you know, art events, but you don't expect it to happen randomly. But it yeah. had, because of the decision we'd taken to do it a collective thing, that did mm. make it spiral and go viral and you know it yeah. did mean that our image it's circulated history. much more yeah th- mm. than than would otherwise and I th- so i think you know for those days it was quite it was scary also because you know the trolls come out a bit as well you know yep. you must know that the the kind yep, of price yep. of fame a little bit um i'm but, sitting opposite know, one at the minute yeah <laughs> yeah he sat opposite a troll i'm a troll <laughs> When you say we made the decision to win the award collectively, yeah. So how does that how work? How did you do that? How did you guys <laughs> fundamentally make the decision I, about know, your we, own awards? We interviewed Helen Kamuk, um recently in Walthamstow just pre, before you all announced it, and yeah. she'd said that you had a WhatsApp group, which at the time was we were very excited to discover. Yeah, but um, and I and I'd also thought. Do you want to know the name of the WhatsApp group? Yeah, what? <laughs> the winners. <laughs> oh, really? The winners. The winners. The winners. So you guys gave yourselves that name when you first got together because you knew that you were all winners. Oh my god. Well, we, we even when we didn't know it, we were trying. We were really, you know, and and hats off to the Tate and um, and the jury for supporting that decision. You know, it's not that I don't want to be. It sounds a bit arrogant to say that. And all I'm trying to say is that we had a will to do it, and it was supported by um, the, the, <laughs> the 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 powers that be. And the panel. Um, and they and they didn't have to do that, and they, they did it at you know at risk to themselves. Also, you know, Alex Farkarson, yeah. you know, really did stick his neck out f- for that decision, and I really do appreciate that. Um, yeah, sure. But how did you do? How did you? Yeah. Did you like have to do a presentation as a group for didn't the panel? Didn't you write a letter? I thought they wrote a letter. How, how did you go about convincing them that this was the right choice for them to make? Well, you know, our argument was reasoned very much um, through the fact that we, when we saw the, so so it's not, you know, we all, ex- a lot of people say, well, why didn't, why did you accept the nomination then? Well, we didn't know who the other artists were at the nomination. We didn't know the kind of works they would make. There's been many mm-hmm. Turner Prizes where it's been extremely um, ununified collection of people who come from very different points of view. And we are very diverse as a group. But mm. I think we take very seriously, you know, the the art as a tool to make political claims. As we, you know, coming back to the very yes. first thing um, I said at the beginning, that we we use the language of art as an aesthetic uh, tool to actually experiment with the ways in which we can say and and partake in the politics of the world. So I think. 
that was what was common between us. The practices are extremely different. Where we come from is extremely different. But there was this central commonality and we felt that, you know, that needed to be taken seriously. That's what needed to, to, to take the stage, not any one single person. Um, mm. And we felt that, um, that actually the, the way of judging between the four of us would undermine that, that what was common between us. And it would sort of say, okay, well, this prison in Syria is more important than uh, the uh, role of women in Northern Ireland, for example, right? In, in yeah, the, exactly. In the struggle. Exactly. And, and yeah. we thought, no, no, these things are inherently connected. Um, and we all saw them as connected. And so it was really about making that statement too, that, um, that you can't reduce us to just the prescience of the, of the issues we're dealing with. We're also artists and we're, we're trying to use our work to show that these issues are entangled with the world, that, are, that are, they're, they're really connected with them. And so we said that, you know, that would potentially, the, the, now that you've chosen this group of artists, we see mm -hmm. a dilemma that, the competition format is is going to undermine the way that we work and uh, that one strand that, that goes between us. Because if there was just one artist who worked in that way, then it, a prize would celebrate that artist for working in, in, in uh, mm. you know, for, for trying to, to, to use art to, to, to modulate in, exactly. a, a, an intensity of an experience around a political issue. So yes. exactly. I think the show the show itself felt like a group show the minute yeah. I got there I was like it's the first time the Turner Prize had ever felt like that to me yeah. and, I, and I think there are some people who were criticising your decision for the reason that oh it's the end of the Turner Prize and it can never happen again but I think they're completely missing the point because there's never been a Turner Prize like this where all four nominees were so socially and politically engaged yes. and all and had such a distinct climate where we're at politically yeah, in the world and had such a distinct message as mm, well mm. and I think also beyond a political um, message, you know, by you guys unifying. I think it was also just the idea of trying to make people listen to each other. And okay, we might all disagree and have very different political, um, you know, uh, agendas. personal agendas. But but I feel like you. I think it was a message to listen to each other. Maybe. Yeah, I, I think people who who criticised it on in general. I mean, of course, you everyone's free to criticise it. That, that's fine, and and uh, that. But I think. If they'd seen the show, they would have got why we made that decision. I think it was very clear, like yeah, you I said, agree. once you I saw. Agree. And I think a lot of those people hadn't seen it. They just judged it on what, you know, we said. But that's really coming from our work as, you know, and, and our process. So if you like, and this is what I said before, if you like what we do as artists and you, and you really like our work, you will get why we made that decision. And you will like that too, mm. in a way, or you'll, you'll understand it at least. So I think... Um, I think it really has to do with with the work, and and I think a lot of that has been overshadowed in the discussion, you know. And maybe that's one thing I regret that now that's the thing that everyone wants to talk about rather than you know talk about the work, even though maybe we work is, we we decided yeah. to do that so that the works would be put back in the forefront, not a single identity, not you know. So anyway, but mm. but but I think um, no, I, I, it, it it's been interesting the response, and and yeah, I think there's enough backlash just for people to say, okay, well, it didn't work next year. We'll we'll go back to it. It's not the end of the Turner Prize if there's a huge backlash yeah. against it. You know, can just has go it back to your, what it was. Has it changed mm. your life and uh, career trajectory since winning? 
I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit early. It's been, a, it's only been a week yeah. or a few weeks. <laughs> but, but, yeah. Yeah. but can but you I see? Mean, can you feel like a vibe has changed, or or has in like has become more people who obviously become more aware of you and your work? And can you can you correlate that with like a surge of more interest in putting your shows on? I mean, I think that had already happened with the nomination, to be honest. And I think that's what a yeah. lot of yeah. artists go through with the nomination. I think, I think that's. The nomination is the win, really. I mean, you know, yeah. um, whether or not yeah. they want to admit that or whatever. I mean, that that would be what I would say to the to to prizes like that, which bring a shortlist, you know, a, a really tight shortlist together. That really, the nomination is the win, and mm. so you you do, I'd already felt it uh, from uh, from the opening and from the announcement of the nomination and. You know, also it happened in a crazy week where it happened at the week Venice Biennial opened and I was also participating in that. So yeah. I'd already felt a lot of that madness. But, you know, the the work is is enough that people, you know, it's not going to be something that you, you still got to see it to get it. It's not going to be just a hype thing. You know, you got to you got to sit with it and you got to get what, what what's going on before you want to put it in a show. You got to really, you know, you, you know what I mean? So. It's not just going to be there's a yeah. lot of hype and it and it just dissipates. So the work itself keeps it a bit grounded, you know. It doesn't spiral uh, into everywhere, and you know you, you see what I mean. It's not a banana taped to to a wall. Hehe, badooch. Hehe. And that yes. that that that's also why these prizes, you know, have a function and are necessary because they do give people platforms to, you know, to be heard in a way they. Mm. Or be noticed maybe in yeah. in a way that they weren't being before. Yeah. yeah, supportive. Is the WhatsApp group still going? It is, it is, it is, yeah, oh, it is. Jealous. Me and Rob are I desperate saw, um, to get into your WhatsApp group. I saw Oscar Murillo in, in Miami last week, and he was um, he was saying, like, we are a collective, and I was wondering whether you would actually ever make work together, yeah, the four of you. Have you ever thought together. about that? No, no, I think we're a collective for the, for the moment that it needed to be, a coll- like, yeah. it, we needed to become a collective at this moment. Um, yes, so it wouldn't make sense to 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 contrive something else. From that. I mean, I think the show. You're not going like, to take it on the road. You're not touring this. Yeah. Collective, <laughs> well, well, I th- I think the exhibition is a great exhibition, just as an exhibition, yes. regardless or not. I think those four yeah, works work really well together, and I think I'd love to see that tour for sure. Um, and I'd be yeah. glad. I'd be really glad for that. But um, as far as making no works together, it, w- it would be quite different. Yeah. And we and it has to be said, we did not know each other before this exhibition none of us had met so it it's kind of wonderful now that you have this bond and this special experience you've all been through it must be a that that must be a win and it's a bit like the x factor Uh, yeah exactly solo artists you've all then done a band (laughs) you've had your greatest hits and then you broke up again you've all gone off a solo artist it's uh it's one direction so so anyway (laughs) moving on from that very swiftly um we ask every guest who comes on uh two questions uh, one is, and, and uh, you better get scared because this they, is serious uh, investigative, investigative journalism. journalism. Yeah, um, but the first question we ask is, if you could take home any artwork and do an art heist and you could take an artwork home with you, what would you choose? And why? And why? It's like a touchstone work of art. Yeah. Well, the problem is a lot of the works that I love are, are from performance and... Um... Great. Uh, but it would be hard to steal. It would have to nick. Uh, well, we can just um, we can help. Yeah. We'll, we'll find <laughs> ways. We have vans and things. <laughs> we can uh, like. Oh my God. Sadie Cole <laughs> wanted a Gilbert and George performance. Yeah, she did actually. She yeah. wanted um, the Gilbert dancing. And George what was it called? The singing, the singing statues. That's it. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, that that would be good. Well, you know who I I don't know if you ever know this Alvin Lucier. I'm sitting in a room. This piece, I'd love to. I'd love to. Maybe it's not stealing, but I'd love to kind of, if I could steal a kind of um, experience. Yeah, an experience. If I could steal some kind of time machine that would bring me back to to when he first did that, I think it's, it's such an incredible work on so many levels. Um, what is I don't it? Know if you, so the work is that he's. Um, it's what, a very his name? famous. I didn't catch it. He's called Alvin Lucier, and it's a very famous kind of like sound artwork of experimental music. He he sat in a room and he read a script. Said, "I'm sitting in a room." And uh, that would then be played back and recorded and re-recorded in the room. Um, and uh, until, it, it, you know, it happens so many times that all you hear is a kind of entanglement of his voice with the sound and the resonant frequencies of the reverberation of the room. Until you get this strange musical sonorous piece that's just developed out of the rhythm of him saying two or three lines. And what he says is, he says he has a stutter and he says that, He's doing this process in order to smooth out the stutters in his voice. And so it's a beautiful piece about the voice, about stutter, about vulnerability of speaking in public, about the relationship wow. of our voices to the rooms in which we speak and resound and the, the way we're inseparable from, from, from the space and, and, and one another. And, and, and I, I find it really um, one of the works that you know, I, I'm really attached to because it also mo mobilized a kind of scientific phenomenon in, in ways which I find fantastic um, and use that for, for an experience of art. Um, when did you was, see this? When was this? Oh, so this is like, for anyone interested in sound and, and, uh, and sound art, it's, it's one of the main pieces. It's really a touchstone work. Um, but he has always worked in these ways um, and I find his his work amazing he's he's uh, uh, uh i guess it was uh i should really uh just google now when i'm sitting in a room was first performed it must have been in the 60s let me just put that oh, 19, 1961 okay yeah so it was 1961 he still performs it right. i actually saw him perform oh, i see it. i thought you'd experienced it so you your time machine so would go you... back to 1961 so you could exactly. be in the room to experience it yeah. at the time so, so i'd steal right. the time machine first that's why that would be the nicking part, and then right. I'd just go there and then go back. The heist would be the time machine. Amazing. Well, the other question we ask all of our guests is, what is your favorite color? My favorite color is like a, a kind of tealy blue thing. Nice. Turquoise. That was blue, actually yeah. Helen Kamuk's. Helen Kamuk oh, chose teal. Did you ask Did you? Tai Shani yeah. and, uh, and Oscar Murillo? Not yet. We're interviewing Ty very soon. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Wow, all you really are a collective. Imagine if all the WhatsApp winners had teal as their favourite colour and they didn't know. That'd be incredible. I've got one more question for you, and it might be a bit crude, but I think it's something that a lot of people question when it comes to sound art. As an artist, you that this is your life, this is your career, this is how you make your money. How do you monetize sound art? So for our listeners, it's like, how do you make uh, a living uh, and able to feed your family and pay your mortgage and everything through creating sound art? Well, a lot of it comes from commissions and, uh, you know, uh, working specifically on projects that you would be commissioned to do uh, for museums. But also, some, you know, uh, 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 a lot of it in, in the late years come from acquisitions. So museums collecting the works, um, 
and uh, and with the big support of of um, galleries getting you know um, people interested in uh, in the work that you do f- uh, precisely for its its prescience its its aesthetic um, it's pushing the boundaries of of specific uh, the the challenges to collecting it often is something that people are attached to and and get people interested in how they can acquire and and collect it so. I find it, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that it's just very similar to how many artists do it. Um, but now we're in a, you know, in a very different world where things can be archived and collected and digitized um, and artworks can exist in many different formats. So uh, we're not just so limited to, 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 to people drawing and, and, uh, and you know, and, and the things that, that, the ways that art became monetized uh, before. It, it's very I- similar to the other artists. Yeah. I also feel in the last decade or so, there's been such a growth in the um, open-mindedness of collectors. I mean, like private collectors who are actually up now for, for you know, investing and collecting works that are very different to what, you know, was historically collected. Mm. And I, there's certain collectors in, there's one in London even, who, who just collects video art or, mm-hmm. you know, or people that will want to collect sound art mm. or installations or, you know, and people are being much more adventurous. And mm. that's, that's also why we're in a great time, you know, for art. And Has I your work been lasts. acquired from the Turner Prize? Uh, yeah, I mean, it had, bef- pr- yeah, World on World had, but it's three works. So it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's different. I mean, after SFX is yet to be part of a museum uh collection or something like that but i wanted to 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 just add to 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 what you just said because it's like one of the greatest conversations i'd had uh about my work about world on world specifically the video piece was with one of one of the people who who acquired it. he's called maria bramson a collector in from the u.s and he's actually a neurosurgeon a neuroscientist and it was fascinating because he had this whole relation to the work. So the work is all about, you know, in the work, it's, it's these stories about sound bleeding through walls and how walls, are, you know, uh, in the work, walls keep becoming solid and then get broken down and solid and broken down. And that's kind of how I'm working with the, the you know, the, 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 the choreography of the work, how the work plays out. And mm-hmm. um, he, he related, he said, oh, this is exactly what happens in the brain with the specific cell walls and how at some point they have to let certain proteins in and eject others. And, and he had this whole reading of, of the work through the kind of cell walls that happen internal to the brain. And it was one of the most beautiful things you could see someone do with the work because they, you know, he, he was so invested in it intellectually, his Someone I had much great respect for for what he does also and and uh, and and you know how the contribution he's making to kind of neurological and and, and everything mm. like that and and it's just fascinating the kind of you know so I think you there's a there's a perception of collectors which is quite wrong and and I think mm. sometimes when you um, sometimes you can have a an, an a really kind of like brain changing conversation with with people and and they really do mm. come from a very dis- different uh place um yeah. to, to the works than than often curators do which you know which is more akin to the way artists think and and practice so it, it's it's been really fascinating that side of things so yeah i just wanted to yeah add which that i guess yeah. i guess it challenges the experiences of what it is to look at art 
when you see it from a perspective like that, it really and also I think I think it um, it helps people see their own lives or their own existence in a, in a new light as well, which mm. is a really magical, rare mm. gift in a way. That's mm. why art's so great. That's why I love it. We love you, Lawrence. What's next for you? Oh, thank you. Um, what's next for me? Well, I've got a piece in the Sydney Biennial coming up. Um, Congratulations! In, That's exciting. Uh, March. Um, and then a f- uh, quite a lot of existing work in shows going on around uh, around and about these next few months. So you can catch it around and about. I can't think off the top of my head where right now, but mm-hmm. it's coming to a town near you. Yeah, I hope. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on yes. Talk Art. It's been such a privilege to speak with you. And it's actually been quite an intense experience because we've never done a telephone interview like this no. before. And I think it's very apt for, for everything that you're artist. for a sound <laughs> artist. And yeah. it's, we've been very attentively listening. Yes. Um, it's been voice. wonderful yeah. to speak. Yes. Thank you so much, guys. Amazing. This was great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank thanks you. for coming on. And for everyone listening, uh, there will be images coming up on the Talk Art Instagram page. Have you got Instagram page, Lawrence? Yeah, I do. I do. What is it? It's just at Lawrence Abu Hamdan, my name, L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E, yeah. So you can follow Lawrence at Instagram and also see images of his work at our Instagram, exactly. at Talk Art. And thank you very much And we'll be that. back very soon. That was such a global international episode. Woo! I loved it. London to thank Beirut. Thank you so much. Um, thanks, thank Lawrence. You. Cheers. Thank okay, you very bye. Much. Bye, bye, bye. 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 You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamant and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at TalkArt, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in this episode. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.